So, I'm going to talk about three cities, and we'll see if you can tell me what these three cities have in common. Cooperstown, Canton, and Cleveland. What do they have in common? Hall of Fames. Baseball, football, and rock and roll, respectively. These cities are known for these Hall of Fames. I mean, this is one of the the greatest things that a society can bestow on someone, right? To put you into a Hall of Fame for your individual achievement in your field. This is the, the pinnacle of football, basketball, baseball, rock and roll, if you're in these Hall of Fames. I also found that there's some really weird Hall of Fames. There's the Stickball Hall of Fame. There's the, the Toy Hall of Fame. There is a Barber Hall of Fame. And my personal favorite is the Insurance Hall of Fame. Uh, we, we give participation trophies for everything these days. And so that's what the world celebrates. The world puts up people and enshrines them and exalts people for what they do individually, for what their personal accomplishments are. But this could not be more different than the message that we see in Hebrews 11. Because in Hebrews 11, as opposed to a hall of fame, we call it a hall of faith. Because they are not enshrined because of their own personal deeds, but they are commended and recognized for their faith in the Almighty God. And this ragtag group of unlikely heroes includes adulterers, prostitutes, liars, thieves, cowards, and they are our examples of faith. And the condemnation for believers is not fame. It is not greatness. But it is perfection. Yes, I said perfection. You didn't expect that to be coming because the world looks at goodness, the world looks at greatness, but God's standard is perfection. Because as great as Michael Jordan and Jim Brown and the Beatles were, were any of them perfect? Not even close. And they are the pinnacle of these Hall of Fames. The best the world has to offer is far from perfection. But perfection is what Jesus called us to. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. It's a high standard. If you ever really think about it and try to hold yourself to that, we wouldn't make it two seconds. But that's what God calls us to. That's who God is. So anyone who thinks that they're perfect, we need to talk. Because you're not. And can you perfectly fulfill what God demands? Because that's what he asks. I am perfect. I am holy. I am without blame and blemish. No one can bring a charge against me. Can you say the same? Because to be reconciled to God, we need to be just as perfect and just as blameless and just spotless. When God created everything, he created it perfect. We know the story of the garden. This was his design for man. Perfection, without sin, without separation. And it was broken by sin, by greed, by a desire to be like God. A desire to say, I will forsake the perfection of God and seek it with my own effort. And we know what happened with Adam and Eve in the fall. And we know what we still live in. We look around us and we see imperfection everywhere. But God's design is still perfection because we know the beginning of the story and we know the end of the story. The end of the story is a heavenly Jerusalem that is perfected with perfected saints that will come down to earth 
and what was lost in the garden will be restored in the last day. Perfection. The biblical standard was never good. It was never great. It was never fame, but perfection. If that's true, and it is, maybe you're asking yourself, what hope is there if the standard is perfection? Aha. That is the ultimate question. We're going to stay tuned because we're going to get to that later. But anything short of perfection is selling God short. Because if God is perfect, if God is almighty, God should not have to, and he will not mix himself with anything that is not perfect. Because it would be an affront to his nature and be an affront to his character. So we're going to look at this idea of perfection from our text this morning. But first, I want to walk through where we've been in this hall of faith so far to kind of give us some context. And then we're going to walk back through the conclusion of this chapter. So turn to Hebrews 11 with me. We're going to do this quickly, uh, but I want to give you a recap. And if you haven't been here for this entire series, I encourage you to go back and read this. You can listen to all these messages on the website. But I also want to help you understand the book of Hebrews. Even if you're just here for the first time, you will understand the purpose of the book of Hebrews by the end of this message, if you're listening. So starting in 11.1, we get this definition, this description of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If it is held in your hand, if it is all there, it does not require any faith. And then he walks through all of these examples, Abel. But the better sacrifice, his faith was proven by the sacrifice he gave God. Enoch was taken up to heaven in his faith. Noah built the ark in faith and was an heir of righteousness. Abraham was obedient in faith to leave his pagan identity, to live in the wilderness with his sons. Sarah was faithful to trust in God's promises that he could conceive a child at her old age. But all these died in faith. Abraham, again, showed his faith when he walked Isaac up the mountain, held the knife over his son, and trusted God to deliver him up. And he did, because God is faithful. And Isaac trusted God that as he died, his sons would inherit the blessing that God gave to him. And Joseph did the same thing. And then we spent several weeks on Moses, the faith of Moses, uh, starting with his parents, who trusted that at the hands of the Egyptians, their son would be dead, but in the hands of God in a river, he'd be safe. Moses trusted in the Lord, growing up in Pharaoh's palace with all of the riches that man had to offer, that he would rather be counted among the people of God than to be counted rich in the things of this earth. That is a man of faith. He lived in the wilderness for 40 years, came back, And in faith went before Pharaoh day after day and proclaimed the judgment of the Lord. And by faith, the people left Egypt and and wandered and crossed the Red Sea, trusting the God who can hold these waters up, that this is the God who would protect them. And by faith, the people went into Jericho, led by Joshua, trusting the power of the Lord who brought down the walls of Jericho. And by faith, through one unlikely woman, They were able to bring down this city, and she was saved and all of her family. This woman who had no belonging among the people of God, but by faith, she was was grafted in. So this is where we find ourselves right now. 
in all of Hebrews, the entire book, is how Jesus is better than these Old Testament shadows. Because these examples of faith are looking toward the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. And if you've ever wondered the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is a good Sunday for you. Because we're going to walk through what God was doing then in this old covenant, looking forward to the promises of God and what God did differently in the new covenant, these promises fulfilled in Christ. Because all of those things that we see here in the Old Testament, they pale in comparison to what Emmanuel, God with us, did on the cross, fulfilling all of the promises of God. The things that they long for, they long to see, but yet we see clearly. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 32. I'm going to read all the way to 12, too, and then we're going to walk back through it. I'm going to move pretty quickly, and we're going to spend most of our time at the end. So we're in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edges, uh, the edge of, of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockery, or mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race uh, that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How wonderful are your works before us. How dare we put our faith in anyone but you. How dare we trust in the works of our own hands or look to mere men for our hope. Thank you that all of these stories point us to your son. Thank you that Christ came to earth to fulfill all of the promises that our faithful predecessors look forward to. Thank you for the accomplishment of full redemption and salvation on the cross. And I just pray this morning that your spirit would speak through me, that your spirit would speak to those in this room that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us and point us to the truth, the good news of the gospel. And that you would get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so let's look at these um, faithful predecessors here real quick. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in 32 through 38. I'll be honest with you, studying this week, there really is not a lot of rhyme or reason to this, this passage. It's not even chronological. Some of these examples are very obscure. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do here is he's trying to give some extreme examples, kind of tie a, a knot uh, on to this hall of, of faith lineage here. But this is an interesting transition because everything that happened before begins with by faith. From Abel all the way up to Rahab begins with by faith. But here it doesn't. He says, and what more shall I say? The faith that was shown from everyone from Abel to Rahab was leading the people into the promised land. This is really important. Because everything that happens from 32 on happens in the promised land. Because everything before was looking forward to the promise that was made to Abraham. I will give you an everlasting land for your possession. I will give you uh, nations, great nations. You'll be a father of many nations. And all of them were looking forward to that promise being fulfilled. And it was in part. Because after Rahab leads them in there, the people of God are actually resting in the promised land. And everyone who follows is now in the promised land. But we know, if you've read beyond Joshua, judges it's downhill. And it doesn't get much better after that. Things are far from perfect in the promised land because this it should remind us that this can't be the fulfillment of God's promises. This can't be the best that it has to offer. Judges is the most depraved and wicked book in the Bible. This is the next generation who are are in the promised land of God. This cannot be God's plan. It wasn't meant to be the ultimate goal. And but now these examples that we're going through are people in the promised land and what they went through. These are actual examples of beheadings, children dying. Uh, There's examples uh, um, interspersed in here about David and Daniel, Elijah and and Elisha. Uh, Just really quickly, the names that are are mentioned, if you want to read more about them, uh, they start in the book of Judges. Uh, Barak in Judges 4 and 5, he was a military leader. He conquered uh, Caesarea and uh, this oppressive warlord who was oppressing God's people. And he did it by the power of the Lord. Also by the power of the Lord, Gideon in uh, Judges 6 through 8, Gideon marches with an army and God whittles his army down to uh, 300 very unlikely warriors. Again, in the power of the Lord, Gideon was uh, triumphant over their enemies uh, in Midian. Uh, Jephthah, he overthrew the Amorites and the Ammonites in Judges 11 and 12 and had probably the most, most unfortunate event in all of scripture where his daughter runs out and uh, he's promises to sacrifice the first thing that he sees when he gets home. Uh, let you read that later. Judges uh, 11 and 12. Samson. We all know Samson's exploits with the Philistines and with, and, and with women. Uh, but at the end, by faith, he brought down this great Philistine structure through the power of God. Uh, Samuel is also mentioned here. Samuel is the prophet of God, the anointer of kings. Through Samuel came Saul and David. And we read about him in uh, first and second Samuel. David is introduced in the middle of 1 Samuel, all the way through uh, Kings chapter 3, or excuse me, uh, yeah, 1 Kings chapter 3. And so you've got this this first era of of God's people. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm going to list these, which you should know, and I could keep listening, and I could keep listening, listing, but that's not the point. The point is when we get a little bit further. So we're going to skip ahead to verse 39. Because for all those things that happened, they're summed up in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
All these, they were faithful, but the promises of God were not fulfilled in their sight. They had faith in what was to come. Because no matter what they received, it was still incomplete. This is the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The promises of God are fulfilled. We're, we're told that in, um, where are they received fulfilled promises? Uh, somewhere earlier in the, uh, the uh, passage. Um, they received some promises, but they were still incomplete. Because they had faith in something that was to be perfect. And everything received before Christ was not perfect. That's the difference between the Old and New Covenant. The Old and the New Testaments. That God was doing something in his people. And God had a plan for them. But everything before Christ was meant to point us to Christ. The purpose of the book of Hebrews. Because everything that came before, Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Joshua. This is chapter 2 and 3. Uh, Christ is better than the sacrificial system. Christ is better than the blood of bulls and goats. He's better than the, the, the priestly system. Everything that happened in the Old Testament was meant to point to Christ. And all of these, though they were faithful, though they were commended, they did not receive what was promised. What, is, what was promised? In the Greek, this is actually singular. So there are many promises made by God. The first promise is in Greek, uh, excuse me, in uh, Genesis 3.15, that the child of the, uh, of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. There would be an answer for sin. It would be avenged and perfection would be restored. And through Abraham, there was an inheritance of everlasting land and an everlasting people promised to the people of God. And in the prophets, there was promise of redemption, salvation, and the good news of healing and restoration by the servant of the Lord that would be to come. This word here is singular, and the promise, every one of those is fulfilled in Christ. These promises become singular, all in culmination in one, the God-man himself, who came to earth to fulfill all of the promises of God. Turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 13. I'm trying to help you guys out. It's page 922 in the Pew Bibles. I want you to see a couple things. Because when they're preaching in the early church in Acts 13, this is what they declared. Starting in verse 32, I'm going to skip around here. What was the good news that the apostles were, were preaching? What was it that Paul was preaching in Antioch? And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. That is the promise. In the resurrection of Christ, all the promises to the fathers come to their fulfillment in him. Skip down to verse 38. Still talking about Jesus. He talks about David for a moment, but we don't need to get into that. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses was never meant to lead to eternal life, was never meant to lead to freedom. There's only freedom in Christ. Promises of God all find their yes in him. And that verse will be on the screen. You don't need to turn here. It's 2 Corinthians 1.20. What do the promises of God lead to? For all of the promises of God find their yes in him, Christ. 
That is why it is through him we utter uh, our amen to God for his glory. Amen? All of the promises of God. Everything that God's people had hoped for, had looked forward to, all are culminated in Jesus Christ. And it could be no other. All of the yeses find their amen. Let it be so in him. That is the promise that they were looking forward to that they did not receive. And that should help us understand verse 40 back in Hebrews 11. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's a transition to us here. The first time he mentions mentions us probably in, in the entire letter. Because throughout Hebrews, it was this was going on and this was going on. He went through this entire historical overview. Now he becomes pastoral. He says, now here's where we come in. For us. This is what it means for us. Since God had provided something better. We might just skip over that. Look at those words closely. God had provided. This is not nothing that these people of faith did. What could be better than something God provided? What could be added to than what God provides for himself? And if God does it, it must be better. And it is better for us. Why is it better for us? We just spent the last several months looking at all these examples of faith. And we know, and we've said this many times, that they're all saved by grace through faith. There is no distinction in that. The salvation of God's people is always those who trust and believe in him. But what they saw dimly, the shadow that they were looking forward to, is on full display in Jesus Christ. The veil is lifted. The light shines brightly on the son of righteousness himself. Who all these shadows of the Old Testament that the writer of Hebrews wants us to look to And then point to Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. God himself in the flesh. The new covenant written in his blood. Not a a covenant that could be broken by men, but a covenant that was fulfilled and completed by God. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the perfect sacrifice. The only acceptable sacrifice before God. Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ because God came to fulfill what he required. Perfectly. God came to earth to fulfill what he required because he knew we could never do it. There's only one who could. He had to be God because he had to be perfect. But he had to be man because man had to pay for the sins of man. And so if you attack the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, that sacrifice becomes incomplete. It is no longer perfect. It can no longer atone for the sins of man or take on the wrath of God. And so, apart from us, because for us, I mean, many times we we read this and we think us. Like, okay, he's, he's just speaking to me or maybe he's just speaking to them. But when he says us here, he's saying everyone who comes after Christ Because we can look back at the fulfillment on the cross. And in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, everything is made perfect. Everything is fulfilled in him. And so because of us, because of our sins, this redemption is brought to fruition. 
Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13. If you turn with me to Matthew 13, verse 16 and 17. Oh, no, it's going to be on your screen. I guess you don't have to turn there. Matthew 13, 16, and 17. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus is explaining this very concept. Why is it better for us? Look what Jesus says. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. And they did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And they did not hear it. We have something better than Moses. We have something better than Abraham. He's saying this to his disciples who are looking him in the eye. But Peter tells us, even though we have not seen him, we know him. Because if you have been saved by the grace of, of, of Christ, you have encountered the risen Messiah. You have seen him. This is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, which we're going to turn to now. And it's just uh, two books behind where we are in 1 Peter, and it's on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1 is exactly what Peter tells them before our, our passage. We're going to all these scriptures because I want you to see this. I want you to get this. This is not isolated. The writer of Hebrews is not doing this on his own. All of scripture is testifying to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. You know that feeling? We can't see him with our eyes, but we see him spiritually. We love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. And you are filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, this is where it gets to where we are. Concerning this salvation, this is Peter, knew Jesus, walked with him, was called by him to be a shepherd of his flock after the resurrection. This is what, this is what Peter says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. All of the prophets were looking forward to this grace. On the edge of their seat, they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. This Christ was at work. Remember, he always has been God. He always will be God. And he was at work within them hundreds and thousands of years before him coming to the cross. Because he predicted, continuing in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Spirit was at work, speaking to the prophets, speaking to the writers of Scripture, looking forward to Christ. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. This is an encouragement to us, that they were building on a foundation that we would reap the benefits of. They were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. When the gospel is preached... It is something the prophets look forward to, that they laid the foundation for, and even more amazing, keep reading, that those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things on which angels long to look. The full revelation of Jesus Christ is something that amazes angels. Angels who stand before the throne of God, and they see God's redemptive work in wretched sinners like us, and they're amazed. 
And they stand in awe and wonder of what God has done. That's why it's better. Because what was broken in the garden, the perfection that was shattered, was reconciled through Christ and the cross, through the blood that is applied through faith. Many great projects throughout history begin in someone's lifetime. They're working towards something that they never see the fruition of. Think of all the stories of missionaries who go into new tribes and go into new countries and they lay this foundation and they never reap the harvest. But they know that their God is faithful. They're like the prophets of old who are obedient, knowing that the promises of God will be fulfilled. We talked about China a couple weeks ago. Imagine Hudson Taylor, who pushed the inward Chinese, the, the inward China mission over 100 years ago who died struggling every moment of his life for the gospel to go out to the Chinese. Now the church in China is growing like crazy. He never got to see it. One plants, another waters. Some take role in the harvest, but God provides the increase. That's what Paul taught us. But this is also here in Hebrews 11. Since In verse 40, since God had providing, provided something better for us. All those who labor are not laboring in their own strength or for their own goals, but to, to what God provides. And this is amazing that we get to step back. Have you ever just step back in awe and wonder at what God has done? Do you ever just think how amazing this is that we get to be drawn in with all the saints throughout all of history? That it's not just us. It's not just the readers of Hebrews. It is all the millions of saints throughout history. And all the saints that are to come are brought into what God provided through Christ. Through one sacrifice. Through one perfect offering. They would be made perfect. It's the end of verse 40 here. It's the goal. Without us, without our sin, without Christ on the cross, they could not be made perfect. And the perfection is only accomplished when redemption is completed. Turn to James chapter 1 with me. For most of you, you just go over one page to the right. James chapter 1 has probably one of the most bizarre introductions of any book if you're reading it without spiritual eyes. Because James begins in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's why the world thinks we're crazy. Because according to the world, we are crazy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Think about that for a moment. Trials that test our faith prove it to be genuine. And the result is perfection. Tried and true faith is perfection in the eyes of the Lord. Because it is not faith in themselves and their own efforts. But it is faith in the one who can make perfect. Because in the resurrection, Jesus perfectly took all of our sins. Did not miss one. 
and atone for them. And Jesus perfectly on the cross gave us his righteousness, his spotless righteousness. He didn't leave one speck uncovered by the power of his righteousness. That is amazing. And it is only through faith that that can be attained. Now we're into chapter 12. I'm going to move kind of quickly here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this therefore, uh, I tell you guys all the time, make sure you read through scriptures, almost ignoring chapter and verse uh, designations, because there should not be a chapter division here. Our chapter divisions were done around 1200 AD, and we'll, we'll, we'll just forgive them. They did the best they could. But many times we stop at the end of chapter 11, and we don't read chapter 12 in context. This, therefore, is referring back to everything that was just said. This is the conclusion of the argument. This is the crescendo of everything that's been building for the last 11 chapters. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I love the picture that A.T. Robinson paints here. He's a a Greek commentator. And this is what he says about the word for cloud of witnesses. Here's what he says. This metaphor refers to the great amphitheater. With the arena for the runners, uh, so he's, he's uh, giving an Olympic metaphor here, talking about running a race. This metaphor refers to the great amphitheater with the arena of, of the runners and tiers upon tiers upon tiers of seats, which reach up to the sky like clouds. But they are not merely spectators, but testifiers who testify from their own experiences. They are witnesses of God fulfilling his promises in them. Can you imagine? When... The writer of Hebrews says, run the race that is in front of you. This cloud of witnesses is like a stadium full of saints cheering us on. Abel cheering us on. Noah cheering us on, testifying that God was faithful to me. Abraham testifying that God was faithful to me. Moses testifying that God was faithful to me. He will be faithful to you. We are in great company. This is the encouragement that the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us here. And then he connects us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now he gets into pastoral encouragement. We're to see these people to be reminded that they were frail like us. But let us also be like them. Shed off this weight. Shed off this sin. You ever try to run with weights around your ankles? You ever try to run with a a bag of boulders on your back? I mean, this is the the picture that... um, John Bunyan paints in Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian takes this backpack full of rocks, all his sins that he's been carrying with him forever, and drops it before this narrow road. Oh, I can run now. This is what he's telling us to do. Take off this sin. Take off, take off this, this weight. Now, he's speaking in the um, original context of the Olympian Games. I mean, they took this so seriously that they stripped down naked to compete. It would make you rethink the uh, Winter Olympics, right? If you had to strip down (laughs) naked to compete, and probably the Summer Olympics for that matter. But they took this seriously. They would not let anything weigh them down. They competed naked because nothing would hinder them from the race that was in front of them. And this is the picture the writer of Hebrews is giving us. To run your race, don't let anything hinder you. Strip off everything that is old. Strip off the old self and put on what is new and run the race that is before you. This is also great pastoral encouragement. Because one of our biggest temptations is to run someone else's race. One of our biggest temptations is to look at those who run alongside us. 
Or look at those who are stuck in the mud or look at those who may be ahead of us and compare ourselves to them. He says, run your race. Because God has created you and he's created you uniquely. You don't need anyone, anything that anyone else has. You were made in his image. You were bought by the blood of his son and you trust in him in faith. You have all you need. And your race will be run by you and you alone because you will be carried on eagles' wings. You can run and not grow weary. Because if we run trying to compare ourselves to others, this is just selfish. And it is arrogant and it is prideful. To say that God isn't enough. Because verse 2 starts with looking to Jesus. It is arrogant to say, I need what they have because Jesus isn't enough. He's telling you here, look to Jesus, looking to Jesus. This, in the present active participle in the Greek, you don't need to know what that means. It just means ongoing. It means continually looking to Jesus. Don't just look to him once, but as you run, you are fixing your eyes on Jesus. Not on who is to the right or the left. Does not matter what race they are running. But if your eyes are on Jesus... He's the starting line and the finishing line of our race. The founder, the beginning, and the perfecter, the end, the completion. Christ is everything we need to run our race. Nothing else. Faith in anything or anyone else is imperfect. It's like if I could learn to play basketball from Michael Jordan or Kevin down the street and I keep hanging out with, with, with Kevin and looking at what, what Kevin's doing. Like, how ridiculous would that be? But we have Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and we spend so much of our time comparing ourselves to others. Maybe it's just me. So many times looking at someone else's race. There should be a lot more amens than that. Amen. Who? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You want to know what love looks like? Jesus considered the cross joy. The joy that was set before him to be punished in the worst torture that has ever been created by man. And considered it joy for us. He endured the cross. All these examples before, they were beheaded. They were killed. They were stoned. Nothing compared to the pain of the cross. And nothing compared to the anguish of the wrath of God poured out on Christ. And he endured that with joy. The suffering, the shame for us. And he took on that shame and he took on that suffering so that he could be the perfect sacrifice because we couldn't. So going all the way back to the beginning. Is there any hope? If God's standard is perfection, what is the solution? What is the hope? To put our faith in the one who's perfect. To put our faith in the perfect sacrifice. Trust that it is completed in him. This is important here, this last detail. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Seated. It is done. It is finished. Nothing else required. 
It is blasphemous to say that you can add anything to what Christ has done. When Christ sits down and said, it is finished, who are you to say, well, I need to keep earning. I need to keep trying. I need to compete with others. If you are in Christ and he sits down, you sit down too. And he is seated at the right hand. The seat of power and authority. Everything under heaven and earth has been given to him. Who are we to seek power and authority for ourselves? Who are we to take away his power and authority? He, the one who accomplished it, who finished it, who started it, who is seated in glory, he is worthy to put our faith in. No one else. So a conclusion, I want to give you a bonus verse. Of course, you all want bonus verses, right? Uh, Verse 3. This is the pastoral consideration for the congregation. Verse 3. Consider him. The best thing you can tell anyone to do is consider Jesus. Think on Jesus. Consider the one who we just talked about. Consider the one who is the founder and the perfecter. The one who ran the race we couldn't run, who did it perfectly. Consider him. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is the best pastoral advice you will ever get. Can't do any better. Consider Jesus. Consider everything he did, everything he took on for us, and you will not grow weary, and you will not grow faint-hearted. This is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus took on suffering. Now, I'm going to bring you full circle. We're going to close with this last passage. Same book, chapter 12. Look at verse 22. You want to know what the Christian Hall of Fame looks like? It's not going to Cooperstown. It's not going to Canton. It's not going to Cleveland. Look, this is the entrance into the Christian Hall of Faith. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Greeted by angels in the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The end result of a faithful life is perfection. Being gathered with all the saints in the hall of faith. A celebration that goes on forever. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We bring this full circle. Hebrews 11 started with Abel and ends with Christ. And here he draws us back. Everything that we've been talking about culminates in Christ. And in Him, we are made perfect. We live in perfection with Him. This is the last thing I want you to remember. If you are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, believers rest in the blood of Christ. And if you don't know Christ, run to the blood of Christ. Because if you are sprinkled in His blood, there is perfection in the eyes of the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, help this to sink in for us. Help us to recognize that this is true. That before the foundation of the earth, you had a plan. You had a plan to send your son to die for sinners like us. That by your perfect work, we may be made perfect. For believers here this morning, Lord, let us rest in that and to cease striving to run our race in Christ and to Christ. And those who do not know Christ here this morning, that let them look to him. Look to the perfect one. Look to the only one who can supply what God demands. And let us be people who are faithful to proclaim this. That the result of faith is being spotless and blameless in the eyes of the creator of the universe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.